Hey everybody, we are Francis, Martin, and Robert, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Welcome to Snakes and Otters, episode 61. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. You might know that quotation. It should be blazoned in most everybody's mind from the <laughs> awesome the very end of the awesome movie, Planet of the Apes. That's what we're about this time. We're going to talk about the cultural phenomenon of the Planet of the Apes franchise. More than just the first movie, more than just the movie series, more than... Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that, uh, it, from uh, just a period of, what, five or six years, Planet of the Apes was on fire. It was everywhere. Uh, there were five ma major motion pictures. Uh, there was a TV series, an animated TV series. There were uh, an amazing toy line, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, comic books and magazines and novels, and apes were everywhere. Uh, Halloween costumes, my goodness, they were all over the place. I never had one. I don't know if, about you guys if you ever got one. But anything that was Planet of the Apes, I wanted it, and I wanted it bad. Uh, the, uh, I wanted the entire Mego toy collection. I never got any of it, which is a big bummer for me. Yes, we still have our regrets even 50-some-odd years later, I suppose. Uh, but Planet of the Apes is fun. Uh, it was also amazingly poignant, as that quotation should kind of point out. This is not just your B-movie. This is not just folks dressing up in apes suits and running around being silly. This is one of the most poignant, there's that word again, uh, reflections of what does it mean to be human. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that, that the a series got such legs under it. Those first four pictures of the motion picture series, we were talking about this in the show prep, I think were pretty darned outstanding. Uh, they, they really, really were. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about you know, our favorites, uh, the good parts, the bad points. The fifth one was, uh, as Martin reminded us, they had no money. Uh, it was basically, we'll give you enough money to make one, one more, but only so much. And it was just kind of, okay, drifted away. Uh, and then, but then it was revived back in uh, the 2000s and made another, yet another fantastic movie series uh, that actually is intended to be a direct sequel. I don't know if you guys realize that. Uh, they literally, in the first movie, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, there is a magazine article that talks about Taylor and his ship disappearing. Uh, this is basically... Yeah, it was, it was very subtle. It was very brief. Uh, it was intended to... That movie is intended to be... Those three movies from the 2000s are intended to be well, the, the prime there's, timeline. There's, there's four. There's the one in... Uh, 2000-ish, 2000-2001. Oh, that's right. Then there are the three later, so there are four movies total. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, but I, I kind of blanked out on that Tim Burton one. I wasn't <laughs> well, that's the one that had Chuck in it. Come on. Uh, well, I know, I know. I, I, was, I had actually going to gloss over that one. I was going to go Monty Python, skip a bit, brother, and go on because uh, it was kind of stinky in many ways, which is a shame because it had a heck of a director and a heck of a cast and a heck of a budget. 
but we'll talk about that too. Guys, what are your all's thoughts about it? Do uh, you have some uh, initial thoughts before we kind of get into what happened and when? Yeah, I, you know, I think you make a great point about the appeal, at least of the first movie series, in that it was way more than just uh, a kind of a science fiction fantasy thing, um, you know, drive-in type, uh, you know, monkey planet kind of thing. And I think a, a lot of that credit goes to two people, the producer, Arthur Jacobs. Arthur Jacobs, yes. And Rod Serling, who wrote the screenplay to the first film. Now, it was rewritten a little bit, but Serling's the guy who injected the themes about the Cold War mm -hmm. and um, a lot of what the part that I think Chuck Heston really dug into was the some apes are more equal than others storyline. Right. You yeah. know, where, where it yeah, that social commentary where it became plain that while the apes professed that they were all equal, you know, Chuck kind of pointed out, well, you're no better than us. You're full of shit, too. Um, because the, the, the chimps were in the middle. Yeah. You know, and, and the orangutans were the were the honchos and, and looked down on all the chimps, and they both looked down on all the gorillas. Yeah. So there was well, the, there was a class structure in that in society, too. I think the chimps were on the bottom because they had no power at all. Uh, now the gorillas had the military power. Yeah, There's truth to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that becomes especially evident in the second picture uh, when James Gregory comes in as the character of Ursus and you see the military power just kind of explode outwards. And Zira and uh, Cornelius, who was not played by Roddy McDowell in that one picture, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, he was off doing a play, he said, and they had another British actor play him. But he sounds a lot like him. If you don't look at the credits, you don't really know that. But yeah. uh, it's uh, they, they were they were caught in the middle. Uh, they were they are in, in many respects they're the protagonists of the story, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, co-protagonists I suppose in the first two pictures. But of course in the third third picture they 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 have the show to themselves. Yeah, they're the central figures of the of the third film, which I really did like the third one. Um, but it you you know it's another one of those where the budget's a little limited, so let's just have three apes. <laughs> Well, that's yeah, let's true. get rid of one of them real quick. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Salmenio, actually, yes, yes. Uh, who was in there just just a very brief period of time. But you know, it was it was a brilliant way. You got to give uh, you're right, giving uh, Jacobs credit for being able to keep this series alive, not just as a moneymaker. Yes, it was that, but he the, the if it, if he wasn't good at what he did, the from two three two and three and four and five would have all stunk. But he had some really great writers on those those two and three and mm -hmm. four uh, to reinvent it and keep it fresh. Uh, and of course, eventually it runs out, as we as we can see with yeah. looking at that fifth movie. But uh, this is some serious biting social commentary uh, about humanity. And to be honest, that gets turned up uh, uh, throughout, the, especially that mm -hmm. third and fourth movie, because when they oh, when yes. the apes are in human society, that third movie, you cannot help. I mean, I watched it with my when my kids were younger, and they absolutely bawled. I, I think I let them watch it too early because the ending is so dark. Uh, these kind and compassionate and empathetic, peaceful creatures 
who have come to live with us, we cannot tolerate their existence. There's a Christ image for you, by the way. And they are killed because they cannot be tolerated. And not only are they killed, but their, their infant child is killed, so, so everyone believes. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, it's unbelievably awful. And it has a, it's a biting, acerbic bite to it, saying, you know, just how evil we humans can be. Uh, the message is so very clear. Uh, in that movie, and uh, uh, many people say that third movie is the best of all of them. I don't know if I can necessarily say that, but it certainly it's hard is to really top good. Number one, number one is it's, it's correct. It's, it's hard to a top terrific that first one. fantasy adventure, along with this great social commentary piece. Well, yeah, the allegory uh, that, is that works so well. Yeah, allegory is done very well here. It's not in your face. It's actually, you know, because if you think about it. Everybody should realize when, they, when you hear them first speaking English, the game should be up, but it doesn't. <laughs> well, it, they uh, ignore all of that. They, they ignore that in every movie. I mean, you can't exactly. really get that as a Exactly, but you have to admit that the very end of that first movie, it, it is still an iconic moment for all the right reasons because you don't really know. Uh, uh, they, really, they really do it well. Uh, that you don't really know that this is Earth until the very last. And then, of course, everything comes home. That's that classic reveal. And I'm sorry if we're spoiling it for you. If you haven't seen the damn movie yet, shame on you. Where have you been living on a rock? Because it's one of the most iconic moments in, in cinema history ever. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, still, uh, it still gives me chills, even to watch it years later. Yeah. And, and part, of it's, part of it's Heston's performance, but... It's it's the writing and it's Rod Serling for you. Rod Serling, uh, yeah. That, yeah. That, that he he would be master of that sort of thing. Yeah. So really landmark stuff. And, I, and again, I think it's thanks to Jacobs and uh, Serling and and some to Chuck too. Well, yeah, because uh, the Chuck's, movie would have never Chuck's been made. Chuck's got it made. That's correct. Uh, that's the uh, it was it was a, a rather obscure novel by Peter Boole. Uh, that was optioned around Hollywood around this time, and nobody wanted to touch it because one thing, who wants to see Talking Apes? That was kind of how it went out. And Chuck was well, so... Well, you got to remember, this yeah. is also at the very end of uh, what is a very campy period in entertainment with um, the Batman show, right? Yeah. with Lost in Space. You know, we've seen... Uh, well, even before that, you know, Irwin Allen did a lot to possibly to, to try and kill this unintentionally. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's rubber suited guys uh, playing monsters in his in his shows, and I'm sure this came off as more of the same. That's what it was expected to be. Well, it, it was kind of like Forbidden Planet and all that stuff. It was going back to those those 50 serials too. Was that was science fiction, uh, and it's it's no accident that Rod Serling is part of this because he was one of the few. Uh, science fiction creators that did it seriously and well with the Twilight Zone. Of course, this was quite a few years before that, and it was anthology too. It was very different. But Star Trek and Planet of the Apes both came on the scene right around the same time, doing serious science fiction. In many respects, against all odds, both of them didn't almost didn't get made because the powers that be in Hollywood said science fiction is is for dummies. It's it's for kids. It's you can't do serious science fiction. And both of them. Uh, created franchises that still endure today because they did it well. Uh, and uh, it, uh, you, when you and we've talked about this a lot. One of the reasons that uh, science fiction, when it's done well, is very good, is because it illuminates the human condition in ways that other mediums and other genres don't do as well. 
it allows you to go, and this was a core of Roddenberry, this is what he said, we, I can tell these stories that the censors will be just clueless about, and yet we can talk about big issues. Uh, Planet of the Apes is the same thing. Uh, well, in fact, yeah, go ahead, Robert. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say that one of the reasons for uh, the rise of science fiction, serious science fiction in the 70s, 80s, and beyond started here in the late 60s because uh, all of a sudden people say, what? Not only is it, is it good, it made oodles of money too? Really? <laughs> uh, and then uh, that, that's why Lucas could come along later and the pump was primed in many ways. You know, there is such a thing as serious science fiction. Uh, and this, this really helped and it showed that there's a hunger for, for good stories in this medium. And uh, I, I, really, I really I do believe that you can draw that straight line uh, through that. Robert? Um, well, I don't remember what I was going to say. Uh, uh, if you want to take a pause and take, you know, 10 or 1,200 breaths there, because you've been, you, you've been incredibly voluminous. I, I was worried you were going to pass out with the, uh, the amount of air that was coming out of you there. Uh, uh, I, I am stunned, sir. I didn't, maybe I should take a drink of bourbon. Would that help? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yes, uh, bourbon just, pause. Just a pause to, to catch your breath. Well, I, I am a there. You guys know me. You know me probably better than anybody else on the planet. And when I am passionate about something, I talk. And this is definitely one of those things that I like a lot. Uh, I stayed up very late in the mid '70s uh, when they would show these movies on uh, late night Saturday nights uh, here locally. Probably 76, 77. That's the only way you could see them. There's no such thing as VCRs. There's no such thing as uh, DVDs or uh, any way to see these movies. Somebody's got to show them. And uh, I saw the first two uh, when they were broadcast on, uh, on, on CBS, uh, Friday Night Movies. And I knew there were more, and I wanted to see them. And I stayed up late. I mean, this was like, it's over, they're over at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm, what, 10? <laughs> my, my parents weren't real happy, but they were long asleep anyway, and I was quiet, so I got away with it because they did it one week. For but I was enthralled. I was enthralled. Still had, still am, even today. I can turn these movies on and watch them and, and not be bored. So what bourbon did you just pour yourself, sir? I have, Now, we talked about this in the show prep a little bit. I have gone out and purchased a bottle of the old tub, unfiltered. Bottled in bond, Robert, that's a tribute to you, sir. Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey distilled and bottled by James Bean Distilling Company here in Claremont, Kentucky. The old tub. It was a very old brand, as we've discussed in another episode. And uh, it had recently come back, and uh, I, I ran into it recently. I said, well, Robert said this is good, so I'm going to try it. So here we are. Yep. So and I have... live up to the um, um, Basil Hayden, or 100-proof Basil Hayden, as it was described to me? I just took my first sip. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, uh, oh, daddy. Yes, I would say so. That is, it's very smooth. It's very uh, bite. It's got that bite to it. It's unfiltered, it says here, which I'm not sure, you know, what, how that affects things. Uh, it does seem to have... Uh, it has it probably a, means a good bite. that you're going to get bits of char and oak in the, in the uh, bottling process. I imagine it would be relatively small, but yeah, I imagine that's not, possible. Not run Absolutely. through uh, the charcoal. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, it, it has nothing in it that you can see. And uh, the, the taste of it is, is, is excellent. Uh, it's smooth, but it's got that bite to it. It's a, uh, and I'm just, I'm very happy with it. I can't wait to share it with you guys. And I have also procured a bottle, so we will be ready to share 
um, next time we are gathered, we should have it covered. That's yes, You're not exactly. drinking that, are you? No, I have not opened my bottle. I am uh, working on finishing off the Larceny. Still? Yes. Well, because yeah, we're not there have, to help you. People are going to think that this, this bottle of Larceny you're drinking is a five-gallon jug. You've been drinking it for so long. It, I'm almost to the bottom of it. Almost. <laughs> There's about yeah. that much left. Uh, well, I've just poured myself the last of my uh, regular Woodford Reserve. This is the uh, last bit of that one bottle. All right. So, I, there's there's one film in the series that is particularly dark. Yes, the third one has a really dark ending, but the fourth one is a very dark film. Um, the screenplay is modeled, the plot is modeled after the 1966 Watts riots, and um, it's a very dystopian, authoritarian future in which the apes are enslaved uh, as menial labor, and police torture is commonplace uh, against both the apes and other humans. Mm-hmm. And that's the fourth film, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And uh, we were just discussing a little bit when this, when we were doing our show prep that there's actually two endings to this film. Mm-hmm. Um, one is quite, quite dark, uh, in which basically all the humans to, who lose the battle uh, in the middle of Los Angeles are killed by the apes. But that tested so poorly that 20th Century Fox uh, <laughs> hurriedly reshot uh, a little bit of a new ending, uh, and the humans were spared, and and uh, Caesar, the son of Cornelius, makes a long speech about, um, you know, we'll try to forgive you, we, it's time we have to live together, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so I just, uh, I find that one, again, it, 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 it's kind of a drive-in fair type thing for the early 70s, 1972. But it's still pretty gutsy stuff uh, oh, yeah. with the social commentary. To talk about the issue of slavery so overtly and show it, mm. uh, I mean, my goodness, this is some... I mean, and you're right, it is evil on evil on evil. Uh, and it was. it's kind of like the entire world has gone mad, and that's a very... And there are only... There are really very, I think, three sympathetic characters in there. There's Caesar himself. There's Armando by uh, the great Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> uh, uh, and no, I'm not talking about each Corinthian leather or anything like that, but he's, uh, he's always cool. Uh, and the guy whose name I cannot recall who played McDonald, uh, yes. which was very deliberate. He's African-American. They wanted him to be one of the heroes in there. They say, you know, yes. because they recognize this is a very uncomfortable subject. Uh, and it's a very, in 1972... Yeah, this is this is dancing on the edge, big time, to actually make this movie. Uh, and if you if you get a chance to see that original version, it was released a few years ago. It is actually a better movie. It really does bring home what isn't supposed to happen. It's more realistic. But at the time it came out, children would come see these these uh, movies uh, all the time. Uh, it was a, it would have been a hard R. There was lots of blood, and the kiddies would have come away. Not just crying, but they would have been hysterical to watch that happen. Yeah. They they would have been having nightmares. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, an open slave rebellion. It is depiction. Uh, with, 
with so, and, and with very all strong. that goes with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was uh, it was still a very good movie. It yeah. it really was. It was uh, it might be my favorite uh, of of all those only because it was so daring. Uh, like we, I think we talked. Uh, Arthur P. Jacobs could have just done the one and said, "Oh, isn't this nice?" And maybe done the second sequel that Charlton Heston had to be talked into just having a cameo in, and that should have ended it. In fact, Heston was delighted when, at the end of the second movie, they blow up the world. He says, "Well, good. They don't have to ask me to come back again." <laughs> uh, and it was a great. You know, it was a, the two together would have been fine, but they made a lot of money, and Jacobs brought in some good screenwriters and. Totally remade it, yeah. uh, and I was talking about at the uh, a TV Guide article around that same time called "How Do You Milk an Ape," uh, and that's kind of when all of a sudden people realize, oh, people will buy anything that's Planet of the Apes now. Uh, so they li- they had to license uh, the the toys and the magazines and the uh, book and records, you know, for kids. I mean, it was a it was a big kid yeah. thing, although it wasn't really... Comic really, book series and comic animated book series. series. Yeah, so. a t- TV series, which was kind of sucky. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I didn't like it all that well. I, mean, I, I tried to watch it, but it's still hard to watch. The animated series was actually much better. It was only uh, like 12 episodes one season. Yeah. But it, it was actually really pretty good. So, Robert... Which one uh, do you find the most interesting? Well, I like the first one best uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it's I think it's the uh, of the first two. It's definitely the most cohesive story. Yeah. Because uh, second jumps around a little too much to be a really good cohesive story. Um, it, it doesn't flow as well, uh, and plus. You've got Charlton Heston as the hero for the entirety of the movie, not just a little bit. And I still want to know where he got the clothes in the second movie. No. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, and, you know, th- it's really hard to beat that, uh, those two iconic scenes. The first is, you know, take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty apes. Everybody knows that line because that, too, has been lampooned hundreds of times in, in media as well as the ending when the Statue of Liberty shows up and he's, he's pounding the sand and uh, wailing about uh, how they blew it up. Uh, it, when I was a kid, I thought, thought he meant the, the statue, because uh, it looks like it's buried in the sand, melted like it's been destroyed, but uh, it's just the changing um, landscape. He was talking about the entire planet. Um, but as far as the uh, you know, entertainment value, when you're a kid, you look at these differently. Um, you know, I really liked uh, probably the third and the fifth better uh, from that perspective uh, because uh, from the third, there's just a lot of fun moments in that when they are uh, becoming the toast of the town, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, plus, not to mention, one of the TV anchors is from Detroit. So oh. <laughs> as, you're, as you're watching, yeah, yeah um, uh, Bill, um, oh, crap, uh, Bill Bond, Bill Bond. Um, and when you're watching that, that's kind of cool that you see that. Uh, honestly, I don't think the fifth one's that bad. I think that's a, 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 a good attempt to end the, you know, to come full circle. And uh, yeah, it's kind of goofy in places, but it is uh, it is still a good vehicle for the the, the topic of race relations. Mm-hmm. Um, probably better because it is. Uh, granted, it's a, it's a subplot. But that subplot of how the humans are treated and corralled and what have you, uh, that is kind of the, uh, the re- and it's meant to be the reverse of what goes on in the fourth film. Uh, but it is, uh, because it's 
a little bit less, um, I don't want to say sophisticated in storytelling, but you know the setting is different because they're all out in the woods because this is post-nuclear war, um, uh, whereas the other one is pre. And that's another thing. In the fourth movie, as great as that one is, because I did love that one as well. I loved all of them. Um, in reality, the army comes in and puts that down. Every yeah. one of those apes gets slaughtered because that just happens in one city. I know it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That's why they had to. That's why they had to create the whole nuclear thing for that fifth movie. Otherwise, well, we that's part of the original point. story, though. Yeah. So you know they were able to to use that as the vehicle to get to that, but that's why I said they were bringing it full full circle. But yeah, uh, in reality, nobody that was part of that uprising survived. <laughs> not at <laughs> well, all. Well, not very familiar with tactics or anything. So right, right. Like, you know, it should have been easy to uh, to flank them and and. Uh, you know, Caesar. Caesar should have had uh, limited knowledge of military tactics. Uh, he lived well, in a circus. You know, the, the those that had weapons that could have fought them were just as surprised as anybody else, and there weren't enough of them because you know they were outnumbered. And, and so, I mean, that's all fine. You know, you have to suspend your disbelief. Um, but you know, I, I just have a hard time beating the uh, the Charlton Heston uh, uh, original. Uh, partially because it's, it's Chuck, yeah. Um, but partially because it is the best, purest form of the allegory they are playing with. Yeah, you know, Dave, you brought up something pretty interesting too. Uh, again, Chuck deserves a lot of credit, not just for getting it made, but his characterization of Taylor and the way Taylor is written, I always found very interesting too. It could have been a very one-dimensional character, and you you lose some of him. When it becomes, you know, the the action really starts with the apes. Uh, you kind of forget the setup, but I really like the the initial part right after the crash landing, and the three astronauts are still alive, and he's uh, they're walking through the uh, forbidden zone. They don't know it's the forbidden zone, but they're on the desert and searching for uh, life and it becomes a discussion between the three of them about why did they come? Why are, I, why are they on this mission? You know, uh, and Landon and Dodge have their own reasons, but Taylor's reason is so, you know, so chilling that he's basically a misfit. Yeah, a nihilist. Yeah, a nihilist. And he's, he's, there has to be something better than man out there. That's why I came on this trip. Right. We we can't be all there is to the world. We we suck. Um, yeah, which of course a, is the I'm whole a point of the movie. Too. Yeah. yeah. So and he, you know, and he he gets his answer. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, it's a really yep, a really neat, right. we suck. yeah a really neat chilling portrayal, and uh, and Serling, you know, the the writing and the development of the character is deeper in that film than really in any of the others. Yeah, uh, Taylor's character. Um, he recaptures his humanity by the end, and that's something that uh, you know at the beginning of the film, you know, he he's incredibly negative. He's he he doesn't give a damn about anybody. Uh, he he only mildly laments the death of Stewart, the only female in the uh, uh, in the crew. You know she's given very short shrift because uh, her her pod was damaged somehow. How it gets yeah. damaged? It's cracked. Whatever. Uh, but. Um, you know, he, I think he regains his humanity uh, at the end. 
know, he wants to live. He wants to to uh, to be with Nova and go off and, and, and explore this new world. And I think that's a little bit of redemption for him. Uh, which is why I think at the end of the second movie, when he sets off the bomb, is a little against a little against the character growth that he had in the first movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was definitely a, a hard turn away from that. It wasn't shouldn't have been that. And part of that is Heston kind of insisting, I don't want to do this again, and you got to do this in such a way where you can't bring me back. <laughs> So that's I think that's one of the reasons it's kind of shoehorned in there, yeah. uh, and, and you're right it's it's very disjointed because Heston insisted I'll be in at the beginning and you got to get me back at the end but that's all I'll do and then you bring in James Franciscus and he's kind of there and you go huh uh, why isn't Taylor doing this well it should have been but it was yeah. it's got all sorts of well, weird was, constructions because of that yeah that was kind of back before the idea of you know the the big time sequel and playing the same character over and over again and having your own franchise. I mean, really, the only other thing that's out there like this is what, Bond? Bond, yeah. I mean, and, uh, and by this know, time, Sean Connery had a terrible uh, experience with it, and you know, I'm sure Heston probably knew that, is that you know, I don't want to get yeah. stuck into this, uh, yeah. playing this thing over and over again. Uh, and, and he didn't have to. I mean, he could choose what he wanted to do at that point. Yeah. One of the other things I find interesting about the, the original movies um, is... I don't know that the um, the changing of the setting and the way the last three movies go is is a factor of um, budget so much as it is the turn in filmmaking at the time. Uh, because in '68 we were still allowed some fantasy uh, in mm -hmm. our movies. Mm -hmm. There is almost a hard turn right in 1970. Yep. And from that point forward, everything is set in the modern day. There are very few fantasy or uh, science fiction of any kind or even westerns or anything like that is done. It, it, those are the rare exception. Even stars that were known for those are now doing cop movies. John yeah. Wayne yeah. is a cop. Oh, my God. Who, whoever would have thought that would have happened. Yeah, even the epic films, uh, the historical epic is pretty much done. Uh, Cleopatra and some others kind of ruined right. that. Well, television changed too. And we've talked yeah. about this a lot when we yeah. did our cop show episode. That everything went real realism. Uh, it's all about you know modern and uh, and uh, relevant. Uh, that's why you have All in the Family and Maud and Rhoda. Uh, right, and that's why Mary Tyler Moore was better. Yeah, and I think that's why the, the 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 racial and slavery aspects are more played up in the third, fourth, and, and fifth movies, because those are 71, 72, and 73. Yeah. When you think about the campus unrest that was going on, a lot of that's going to play to, the, to, the, to that crowd. Um, and just the strife that was going on uh, seemed to demand those issues be dealt with. And, and you know, that can go either way, because that could go, we don't want to have to deal with that, we want our fantasy. But because we just came out of a big, epic, and fantasy-oriented uh, period of filmmaking, because... You know, we had it all uh, with uh, the big epics starting in the 50s, and then when you had Technicolor for all of the, the stuff in the, the late 50s and, and 60s and all these big things going on, and then finally they just get tired of it. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I think that the third, fourth, and fifth are, are less a reflection of money. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but more so a reflection of what does this mean to our modern times? How does this, you know, how do we deal with these issues 
as Americans in the twenty-first in the twentieth century. Yeah, because you're turning off the news, which is only pretty much about Vietnam or the Manson murders or <laughs> something else horrible. Or Watergate. Or yeah, getting coming up on Watergate. Yeah. And you're turning that off to go. Okay, well, let's go to the drive-in tonight and watch Planet of the Apes then. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, and you get a mix of it. Because there's still that fantasy element, even if it's only mm -hmm. minor. Yeah. You know, one of the, and it's one of the great things about science fiction. Uh, yes, these are all science fiction because there is a, uh, you know, time travel and all that that makes it science fiction. But to me, science fiction uh, is not really a genre unto itself. Because to me, it's the vehicle for all of the other genres. Hmm. Uh, just as uh, any genre that is... Um, setting base. The Western is a vehicle for all of the other genres mm -hmm. because it's just the setting. And, you know, you can do every other, you can do a crime, you can do a thriller, you can do romance, you can do science fiction in a Western, you can do Western in a science fiction, you know, because you had um, uh, How the West Was Won was science fiction in a Western setting uh, in, in, in with Will Smith and uh, 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 Kevin Klein and oh, uh, The Wild Wild West. Yeah, Wild Wild West, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and Kenneth Branagh. And then you've got um, uh, Firefly, Serenity. Uh, yeah, I was hoping you'd mention the movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's Westerns in a science fiction setting. Yeah. And that's why, that's why science fiction is great because it can, um, in many ways, now sometimes it's over, you know, hits you right smack in the face. There's no subtlety. Yeah. And I don't like that kind. But when you use Westerns or science fiction especially, because it's easier to do it, I think, because of that, that fantastical element, uh, it's easier to make social commentary in yeah. those settings. You because it's, it's more, it can be more subtle. It doesn't have to be in your face. Yeah. You can provide a lens, which in the outer ring is a lot of fun, but yeah. underneath that lens, when you look really hard, it's a, a morality tale it, it, it's a tale of uh, of someone like Taylor, where he says, "I'm a seeker too." He's seeking justice. He's seeking um, humanity, uh, and and so that's the that's the lens. That's what you're supposed to eventually see underneath the uh, the ape makeup. Right, and that's you know that's Zira and Cornelius, the only two true humans. The the, the when you in the sense of, um, you know, Taylor's looking for something better than, than man. What he's looking for is uh, man at his best, mm -hmm. because obviously that's the only way we can look at that. Uh, you know, protozoan slime is kind of hard for us to relate to, so it's man at his best is what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, he finds it in Zira and Cornelius, two of the apes, the chimps. He doesn't find it anywhere. Any, you know, he finds a little bit of Nova, but she's such a, a blank slate. She's a tabula rasa. She's, she is not something that... Uh, she represents, I guess you could say, the potential of humanity. Mm -hmm. Whereas, um, you know, Zira and Cornelius, they show the best traits of humanity. <laughs> well, there's and, Robert the Hammer. <laughs> Absolutely. Putting it down. Putting it down. So, tabula rasa even using some Latin for us. That's right. Yeah, I'm only I'm only chuckling because I'm because since we're doing this on, on on a video call, I can see Martin in the background uh, pantomiming the hammer, hammering <laughs> right. 
hard to keep a straight face and talk uh, while I'm watching that. But, um, but that's what makes this a great science fiction as well as a great moral tip because it's the, the vehicle is used so well, and I think it's done best in the first movie. That's one of the reasons why I like the first movie best. I would uh, I would agree. I I go back and forth myself depending on the day on uh, which ones it is. One thing we haven't talked about much though are those later movies. Uh, I know we'll probably will skip over uh, Tim Burton's a little bit unless you want to talk about it. I, 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 think, I think you have to talk about it if for no other reason than you've got Chuck in it. That's um, right. It, was it his last role? It was almost. It was. It, it I wasn't, think it, it was, was. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he was uncredited, I believe. Uh, he played the father to uh, was it Tim Roth I think Tim, Tim Roth, Roth that's correct Roth, that's right yeah uh, who who couldn't stand him uh, right. as a person oddly enough um, but you know it had some great great acting Helena Bonham Carter was the uh, the female ape in that mm. she was phenomenal I thought yeah uh, I mean, she's a phenomenal actress anyways yeah but for someone like her to be able to come in and do something like that just shows how how good she she truly is um, yeah the story was goofy. The ending was goofy. They tried to do their own version on the Statue of Liberty, and it wasn't that great. Uh, although, honestly, I thought that as a series, that would have made a great second movie if they picked it up right there. Uh, we're oh, back yeah. in what should be modern times, and instead of people, they're all apes. The Lincoln Monument is an ape. Right. And that's actually the way the, the, the book ends, uh, Peter Boole's. It was actually kind of closer to his in many respects, not the science fiction aspect, but that turnabout. He tries to make it back and finds out they're all apes. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I read that. I read that as, as a kid because uh, yeah. I, I was, you know, I was all into this as well. I didn't get a whole lot of the toys, uh, although like you, uh, Francis, I wanted them. Yeah. Um, you know, I stayed up. Uh, I didn't have to stay up till two o'clock in the morning, uh, but I remember what I very vividly remember watching them uh, when we lived uh, in a city called Taylor in Michigan. Uh, oddly enough, ah, uh, and, and, and they would be they would be on TV regularly. Mm-hmm. on one of the channels, I don't remember if it was ABC or CBS. And, you know, this is, would have been before 75. So, you know, they were hitting reruns on television pretty quickly. Uh, and that's yeah. probably partially because that's a good way to promo the movies as they come out. Yeah. And of course, into the later 70s, too. Yeah. Uh, I liked the TV show. Uh, I enjoyed it because I couldn't get enough of any of it. Well, that's, yeah. that's the same way, yeah. Uh, it was really so, you know, any apes is good apes. That's kind of the way it was to me. Uh, looking back on it, it was just, it was because I wanted more ape stuff, and this was the only way you could get it at that time. Uh, I, I really loved the animated series. I really, uh, I thought it was one of the very best well-done stuff. It even had some uh, pieces from the movies dropped into it. Uh, the character Brent makes an appearance. Nova's in it, and, of course, Zira and Cornelius, Dr. Zayas. Yeah, uh, and you know the settings are a lot different. They they've got technology. Um, you know, there are cars, for instance. Uh, you know, so it's it, it's a different setting than the movies, but yeah. uh, it, it stands on its own pretty well. The the animation is, is crude, but it's fun. It really is. Well, yeah, it was uh, it, it was really it was I I enjoyed it. Uh, it's uh, like I say, like you, I've got the DVDs too, and uh, I, I do pull them out every every once in a while because uh, uh, it was the story. Like the Star Trek animated series from around that same time, the stories were excellent. These were not written for for small children. These were serious science fiction stuff in an animated format. Uh, the stories were excellent most of the time. Not always, but mm-hmm. most of the time. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen two of the last three movies, and I hear there may be a fourth in the works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, I have not seen I, the I, final I, one. Yeah, uh, they are really, really good. They they were intended to be. Uh, I remember I the first one quite a bit. 
yeah, Rise of the Planet of the Apes was uh, was really good. Uh, it sets things up uh, excellently well. It's a hard sci-fi series, though, so, yeah. much more so than otherwise. But it, it, I'll give Matt Reeves a lot of credit as the driving force behind this. He wrote these thought things very, very, very well. And it was intended as a trilogy. Uh, it was always intended to end where it ended. Uh, you cannot, I mean, Andy Serkis doing uh, motion capture, come on, he's the king of such things. Uh, and he did a fantastic job in all three of those movies. Uh, it, it, it's a great dystopian future of how in the world could apes take our place. Well, they, they lay it out very, very clearly. It's a biological plague that we released on our own. I mean, it's... Uh, oddly different. enough, they, they use the 12 Monkeys uh, 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 plot twist uh, with, with the plague. Because uh, you're right, that's really the only way, the only way that makes sense. Because anything that's going to kill off man is going to kill off the apes as well. Right, yeah, exactly. So uh, it really is a fantastic... Um, I, I enjoyed it well. Uh, I'm not a huge Woody Harrelson fan, but I thought in that last movie he absolutely freaking nailed it. He was just really, really good. I have grown fond of his stuff more and I more. I have too. Um, That's correct. You know, he, he was great in Zombieland, for instance. Great comedic yeah. role. Love fun. that movie. It's hilarious. Um, uh, in uh, Doc Hollywood from many moons ago with uh, Michael J. Fox, uh, he, he plays another uh, hilarious comedic, comedic role. Uh, he, he's got a lot, lot more depth and breadth to his ability. He, he, did, he did. He actually did, not to go off on a tangent, he did a live version of remaking some All in the Family scripts with Norman Lear. Uh, they did uh, Marissa Tomei with, with him, believe it or not. He played Archie, and uh, Marissa Tomei played Edith, and it was uh, in front of a live audience. They actually recorded same same scripts they used years ago. Uh, fascinating stuff, because uh, you can see He's a great actor. Uh, I'll say that freely. He, he's uh, he of the Cheers alumni. Surprisingly enough, considering he was nobody when he came into that series, he's probably the the, the biggest star that came out of there. That's saying a lot because Kirstie Alley, Ted Danson, and uh, Red Corman and Danny DeVito. Actually, Danny DeVito wasn't in that, was he? Well, uh, no, no, no. Sorry, I, I I put the two together. They're divorced now. I probably shouldn't do that anymore. But uh, uh, that's, well, Ted uh, Danson became a uh, pretty big deal. Uh, he had a he had a time when he was pretty much off the radar, but uh, that's picked up in recent years. Oh yeah, he's done a lot. Of, I mean, they're they're all great. They're all great. But that 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 Matt those Matt Reeves that Matt Reeves trilogy. Oh, of course, Kelsey Grammer. Oh well, of course, absolutely. Well, yeah, the, the, he's he's my guy. He he's he's my guy. I love Kelsey Grammer. I think he's a. Uh, I've uh, in fact I, I'm not wearing it tonight, gentlemen, but I usually have a uh, Fraser T-shirt that I wear so often uh, because he's one of my one of my heroes. Hello, Seattle. I'm listening. Uh, but that's uh, that's another that's perhaps that's another episode. We should perhaps do a Fraser episode. We've not done one of those. Uh, that would probably be a fun episode. Hello, snakes and otters. I'm listening. I'm listening. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Anything else, guys? Uh, before we wrap this bad boy up, I mean, uh, a lot of this is nostalgia. I'll freely recognize that, but you know, it's got legs too, as we've discussed. Yeah. Uh, it's it really is, and and that new trilogy, I think, brought it home to a new generation that knew the iconic moments, knew that there was a history there but didn't live it, but they have now. I really hope that they do do a fourth movie on that. Uh, uh, I, I think there's lots more that they could do very, very well with that. Final thoughts, guys? 
it's just funny to think of a a film franchise from 1968 to 1973 as being still somewhat relevant in its mm -hmm. message. Um, you know, and it does a better job with that message than say, I don't know, let that be your last battlefield. <laughs> You're trying to get a rise out of Robert on that one. <laughs> no rise because, you know, I'm in total agreement. That's right. I was going to say, yes, uh, trying to get a commentary there. Well, that. you know, there's a difference between having um, nearly 10 hours of movies uh, to play with this, or just even the first movie, you know, two hours-ish, 90 minutes to two hours uh, to play with this, versus 51 minutes in a an original series uh, Star Trek episode, uh, you know, which is just astounding when you think about it, because today you're lucky if you get 42 minutes out of an hour. That's right. That's yeah. why they had to cut the heck out of it if you show it in yeah. reruns. You know, ads are literally twice as long as they were 50 years ago. Uh, so, uh, and, and they often did 20, 25 to 30 episodes in a season. There was no hard cutoff like there is now. Yeah, 22 you're, episodes. You're lucky if you get more than 10 episodes out of uh, uh, some shows in a yeah. particular year. 10. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, the, to me the biggest thing that, that about this is that... Um, uh, you know, it's fun. It doesn't last unless it's fun. Uh, that's that's the primary. Well said, sir. That's very well put. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and even though as dark as 3, 4, and 5 get in the original, that's uh, Return, Conquest, and Battle for Planet of the Apes, uh, there are still fun moments. There's times when you recognize humanity in what's going on. You know, we, we can see ourselves in all those situations, uh, which... To me, it's a mark of good science fiction when you can see yourself in what is essentially the alien characters. Uh, it's a little bit easier with apes because, you know, they come from Earth and, you know, it's, they're a little bit easier to, to identify with. Um, there was probably uh, a little bit of um, um, unintended, maybe, I don't know. Uh, some of the apes, uh, some of the gorillas uh, seem to have some, um, some negative racial overtones in, in themselves. Uh, from the way they were portrayed, uh, they seem to come across as uh, most, uh, I don't say Black Panther kind of um, um, uh, elements, but, you know, they seem to be the, 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 the just to put it in, you know, modern times, the, the Black Boogeyman uh, of the, the series. Hmm. Uh, in, in that one movie, the fifth movie uh, specifically. Right, yeah, Claude Akins, I think, was... Yeah, was Claude Akins, yeah. yeah uh, oddly the, enough, white guy. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, matter of fact, probably most of them were, were, were white people because that's mostly what got acting jobs uh, back then. Unfortunately, you're right. I mean, McDonald and his, uh, and his brother in the fourth and fifth movie were deliberately intended to be African-Americans because they wanted right. to blunt that racial... I mean, they at least had that understanding that this could be very racist if it's done poorly. And we want to make sure that we, we head that off. And the actors that they chose, and I'm sorry, I do not have their, their names, uh, they, they actually pulled it off very, very well because they are, they are two of the heroes. Uh, yes. I was going to say, Martin's they? already got this looked up, yeah. Uh, uh, Harry Rhodes plays McDonald in the... In Conquest. In Conquest. Yeah, fantastic portrayal. Austin Stoker played McDonald, his, the brother, uh, in Battle. Right. And I want to give one other shout-out to somebody who was instrumental in these films, and that is, um, in these original films, that's 
Paul Dean or Dane. I'm not sure of the pronunciation of his name. Oh, Dane. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. He was the screenwriter who took over, uh, starting with the second film, and uh, screen wrote, did the screenwriting for Escape and Conquest and, and submitted a draft for Battle but wasn't able to see it through. Right. Yeah, see, and he, he, yeah, he, he deserves a lot of credit because that, the, the, the really great movies that three and four were, that's him. That's yeah, it's him. unusual to get the same screenwriter on that many movies in a series. You know, even George Lucas did not write all of the Star Wars films. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Certainly not direct. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, they're fun. That's why they last. Uh, you know, technically, they may be out, uh, outpaced and overshadowed by the more recent movies, but uh, you know, I still think that first one holds up. Really. And the second one as well, because it's, it's, it's essentially the same settings. Uh, right. As a kid, the thing about the second one that fascinated me was all the underground stuff. I loved seeing the ruins of the human mm-hmm. world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that was awesome. Well, it made sense because if you're going to have the big reveal at the end of the first one, then you should explore what that means in the second yeah. one, which they did, and they did that very, very well. They kind of pay, That's one of the reasons I, think I like the second one so much too is it pays forward what you had. It's a true sequel, uh, which it's not just another story set in the same same world. I, I kind of like that continuity. They're very linked in many ways. Yep. So, guys, I have uh, one or a little shout-out. Um, two uh, very large musical figures uh, passed away recently, and I wanted to raise mm-hmm. a glass to both. I'm hoping I, I'm pronouncing the name correctly, but Ennio Harley Daniels. It's real easy. He's he's the second one, but the first yeah, one is sorry. Uh, Italian composer. Uh, we talked about spaghetti westerns, and he wrote the music in a bunch of them. Um, oh. And he passed away. I think he was ninety-one, something like that. Uh, but uh, very famously wrote "Ecstasy of Gold," the song that the instrumental song that plays during the big three-way gunfight in the Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yes, Robert, uh, you mentioned Charlie Daniels, a great patriot and great performer, mm-hmm. uh, recently passed away of a stroke at age 83. So. Oh, yes. He was, he was an amazing uh, – we all remember how he came to uh, uh, prominence in the late 70s, and he's, he stayed with it ever since that. I, I, I actually got to see him perform. Uh, not that many years ago, uh, and he was, and he was in his late seventies, mid seventies, and he was yeah. just as fired up as he ever was. He, uh, uh, wonderful guy. Played yeah, if you don't like deviling down to Georgia, you're not, you're, you're just not human. <laughs> amen, amen to that. Yeah, well, hey, uneasy rider, un, uneasy rider is one oh, of my favorite songs. I, I love, love uneasy rider. You know, that's one of that we could quote easily. I just reached out, kicked old green tea and right, right, in the knee. right in the knees. That's right. We could sing the song probably, but we're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, I took my hair up under my hat and told the bartender that I had a flat. Would he be kind enough to give me change for a one? Yeah. Unfortunately, as uh, I believe as Liza Minnelli said when she was asked to sing Over the Rainbow, it's been sung, is what she said. That's kind of what I would say with Charlie Daniels in that song. It's been sung. He <laughs> did it. Uh, it. There's no way that any of us could ever... Uh, hope to do that. Well, we bet we'll have to. Well, to uh, certainly not us, anyways. Well, I suppose that's very true. <laughs> but we can raise a glass uh, to both of these gentlemen. Uh, yeah, may absolutely. they rest in peace, and uh, may their legends live long. Yeah, uh, thanks for what you will. gave us. Thanks for the the great entertainment. 
Amen to that. So, Francis, what's up next? We got a hoop at you, boys. It seems Uh-oh. like it's been a while. Uh, the last one was the, the interview episode we, we, we did with our friend the Emperor. This one here, we're going to be as weird and as changing around and <laughs> something. Uh, I think, Robert, you're the one that came up with this idea. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I got it from, from people at work, and arguments started over this, this very thing. Uh, all right, we're going to settle that argument. Uh, yeah, we're going to settle the argument of is cereal a soup? Yes. As well as other funny, weird food facts. We think you're going to have a blast with this. Uh, Martin's going to captain this. Uh, he's already got some ideas, so he tells us. Uh, we're just going to have fun like we always do with our Hoopajube episode. So before we sign off, uh, since you mentioned uh, the last Hoopajube was our interview episode with yes. uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he is, uh, as listeners know, because it's been a couple of months uh, since that one uh, aired, uh, and I think we mentioned it a few episodes ago. He uh, went in for a liver transplant, uh, ended up being a huge ordeal, ended up with two transplants uh, out of three livers because the second one was was botched, getting the liver to them. Uh, finally, has been moved to a rehab hospital. Uh, he's able to uh, communicate. Uh, I, I was on Facebook Messenger with him. I don't want to tax him too much, so I, I told him, when you're ready to, to, to talk, get a hold of me, and we chatted that way today, and uh, he was his usual irascible self. Uh, he's got <laughs> infection Can't going on. They need to help. They need to uh, clear up. But uh, you know, the infection is not with the liver. So the liver is doing fantastic. He's just on a long, slow road to recovery. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, he's always in our prayers, of course, and we hope yeah. he's in yours as well, listeners. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us, and please... Remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.